This is a podcast for Functional Ecology at British Ecological Society publication. Hi everyone, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Baylitz to the podcast. Michael is a postdoc at Michigan State University currently, and today we will be discussing his recently published functional ecology paper titled Phenological Research Based on Natural History Collections, Practical Guidelines, and a Lepidopteran Case Study. So this paper was published as part of a joint special feature on natural history collections, which was published jointly in Functional Ecology, Journal of Animal Ecology, Journal of Ecology, and Methods in Ecology and Evolution. So hello, Michael. How are you? Yeah, hi, Frank. I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, we're delighted to have you on. So uh, perhaps we could just start with some introductions and, and you could tell us about where you are in the world right now and what you're up to. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, right now, I have just completed in the last couple of weeks um, my PhD where I was at the University of Florida and the Florida Museum of Natural History. And I'm excited to say that um, the degree is in hand, and I've moved to the postdoctoral position at Michigan State University, um, where I'll be looking at the kind of climate change impacts on butterfly communities uh, over the past 30 years in Midwest um, butterfly communities. Wonderful. Thank you. So if we could, um, could you tell us about what it was like to work or study at the um Florida Museum of Natural History. What what was that like? Yeah, absolutely. I was like born and raised in rural Wisconsin in the United States, and I really loved being outside as a kid and just really took a lot of wonder in the natural world. Loved looking at trees, the way leaves like rustle in the wind and just got uh, quite excited about nature in general, but I wasn't, I didn't really know too much about careers in ecology or research and uh, definitely didn't know you could make a living related to like insect ecology. Um, but in college where I went in uh, Illinois, I was able to uh, take a field course and just like was wowed with the idea of you could learn and there's still things to be learned about how animals and plants are interacting with the environment and like research is still being done in that. It kind of blew my mind, led me down the path to wanting to become an ecologist. And then during my master's, I also from my, I think, related to my rural like upbringing i was like well i should probably have a backup plan in case uh the whole like insect chasing doesn't work out so i should get some other skills so at that time i learned about data science um and it was kind of that combination of like not only uh can uh i continue to learn about um insects, plants, other animals, but I can apply that through data science and other computational approaches that I was really um, excited about those possibilities. At that time too, my master's advisor, uh, Dr. Anna Monfils at Central Michigan University, 
Uh, she was the director of the herbarium, and I got to go into this collection with just thousands of plants uh, that are hundreds of years old, and it just really opened my eyes and the possibilities of that in these rooms all across the country, there's just these data of historical data sitting there uh, with great and just truly endless possibility as far as your creativity can take it. Uh, so that was really an exciting time, which led me to then go to University of Florida, which has um, one of the largest, if not the largest butterfly collections in the United States uh, and potentially the world. Um, mm -hmm. So it has this incredible butterfly collection, the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity, uh, which allowed me to really kind of dive deep dive my data science interests while still being just surrounded by phenomenal butterfly and moth researchers that are interested in trying to use um, the data in the collection in new and innovative ways. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So as someone who has recently made that jump then between um, PhD to postdoc, I was wondering if you could provide one piece of advice, perhaps to a young ecologist or perhaps to a to a young Michael. What would Michael have liked to have been told? I think one piece of advice that I would have liked to have and I would give to others is really to be okay with making mistakes and mm -hmm. knowing that it's a lifelong learning process. I think I'm surrounded by and being mentored by all these uh, great minds. So I have to like show up right now and be perfect in what I'm doing. But you really can only know what you know, and then you learn what you don't know once you learn about that aspect. So you're going to make mistakes. And I am much more comfortable now in making mistakes and just know that I still have so much to learn and will continue to throughout my entire career and just I'm a lot more comfortable in that uncertainty and the possibility of making mistakes and it's just trying to learn from those and make incremental progress throughout your entire time. All right well I'm going to put you on the spot here and make you flaunt your dirty laundry. What's the uh... yeah. What's a mistake that you learned most from? Or just a funny mistake that we can all kind of <laughs> share laughter in? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, one mistake that I would say that I've done was just, uh, well, I got probably many. One that comes to mind is from a field experiment where I was... Um, working with uh, like four other people were in the field trying to um, identify butterflies as they're flying. And I mm, kind of trained everyone on how to identify these butterflies, but a few of them came into it with really limited butterfly identification experience and I think that I probably was very limited in my training. 
<laughs> so I finally get around to analyzing the data a year later and realize that just given when this butterfly should be flying on the landscape, uh, it could not possibly be ID'd correctly. And basically all the data for that species and the one that it was being mis-ID'd for was just a wash. And it was really hard <laughs> data. I, I mean, it's just like, uh, was a big learning experience in my management of like how to like, um, make sure I'm giving the most clear advice and then checking in on people to make sure it's working. And then just like really early doing uh, quality control, quality assurance. And I think that's been a learning factor throughout and in data science applications, absolutely too. Just like doing quality control as soon as possible to find <laughs> those mistakes before it's a year and a half too late. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think there's lots of lessons to be learned from that, and you've definitely picked them up by the sounds of it. Um, so just before we jump into the paper, and have a feeling I know what species you're going to say, but perhaps you could tell us what your favorite study organism is. And I also like to ask people as well what their favorite study site is. You could do site, or is there a collection, perhaps, somewhere around the world that you you just love to get your hands on? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So I do love, uh, I have a soft spot for butterflies and moths. And if we're going to be more specific on that, I really like the small skipperlings. So they're a type of butterfly that are often about the size of a U.S. penny. Uh, and they can really be quite drab. People would, might think that they're like little brown butterflies, um, but I think the uniqueness between them and the wing coloration, and they kind of can sit in like a, they look like a jet when they are resting on a leaf and they can be really cute and their flights are very varied. Some just like skip incredibly fast through the landscape. Others just make a ton of wing fly, uh, flaps to not really move very fast and just slowly meander through grass. And I think all that combination just leads to a really enjoyable species to uh, interact with in, in grasslands. And I guess that leads to my next part of what habitat do I love being in. My master's research was in prairie fens, so these wet prairies that um, can get your feet wet a little bit. There's uh, really neat, rare, and endangered plants there that then support really amazing butterfly communities. So I love the prairie fans. Wonderful, right? That's a great answer. Thank you for that. So let's um, let's dive a little bit into the paper. So could you, in plainish terms, um, Explain the novelty of this paper, perhaps mention some key takeaways, interesting results, recommendations, that type of thing. This paper was, as you mentioned, part of that cross-journal special feature on leveraging natural history collections to understand the impacts of global change. And we're living in a world just like undergoing immense ecological change. And a lot of the data 
that we've been collecting in uh, ecological spheres has really been collected in more present times. So natural history collections, they provide this, uh, like the most valuable, they're such a valuable information source for biologists to understand this change. And one common way um, ecologists are using natural history collections data is to study phenology, which is the uh, timing of natural history events. Uh, but using natural history collections data is actually really challenging because the structure's not known. People, it's hard to know how intensely areas are surveyed and there's really no structure. They can be often collected more along roads and easy to accessible, uh, accessible areas. And they're aggregated um, in large studies from many data providers, so from collections all over the place. And to deal with this, uh, then you can be collecting millions of observations. So it takes some um, programming and data science skills to use. Um, so in this study, I think we provide like kind of two main novel areas where first, we're trying to provide the best practices um, and recommendations for ecologists generally on how to use natural history collection data to study phenology. And then we walk through these recommendations in our own case study to examine the timing of um, butterfly moth flight timing across North America. Um, it is novel in the fact that it lays out these practical guidelines which um, have been less discussed in phenological research using natural history collections. And then we also uh, had our own study where we have 200 plus uh, butterfly and moth species over the past 100 years. And we find um, one really interesting result that even after accounting for the climate impact, so you are, would expect butterflies and moths to fly earlier in the season with uh, warmer temperatures. But even after accounting for that expected result, we found that migratory species and species that are overwintering, entering diapause as adults are flying earlier in more recent years, which was quite unexpected and kind of highlights that there's some physiological difference between those species and the other species that overwinter in different life stages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, so I wanted to touch on the point about sort of data sharing, um, mm -hmm. because my follow-up question to this is basically going to be, what, what was the reason that you, why, why did you feel compelled to share this with the ecological community? Did you spot that we are sort of at the frontier of perhaps a great moment of sort of data sharing and accessibility to data and did you see a sort of gap where recommendations and best practice perhaps needed to be you know that sort of engenders caution when we're right on the precipice of this amazing event type thing you know yeah absolutely i think that there's an increase of the natural history collections data have really like been in these museums for hundreds of years at times and there's a long history of those data existing in the museum 
but only recently have they been digitized and available online for all researchers to use. And that's been a huge transformation in how we can um, like create ecological research because it's easier than ever to grab those data. Um, but then it's also easier than ever to like make mistakes using those data. And basically I wanted to write the paper that I wished existed when I started my PhD. And there's papers for species distribution modeling, um, which has been being used using natural history collection data for a longer time really than phenology studies. And there's a good amount of literature, perhaps some might even argue like an overwhelming amount of literature in that field on how to best use those data. But there's a lot less of that discussion for phenology research, but quite a bit of phenology research being done. So I think it was uh, important for like myself as an early career researcher to really think through the best ways to do this. Hopefully I can help others in sharing what I got through that process. And then um, also I was just hoping it could really like start a discussion in the literature where others can also be improving on what uh, we have. I don't think we solved the best way to do it, but it's a starting point for the discussion. Cool. And so I was wondering, perhaps you don't have to call out any names or papers. We don't want to be throwing shade at people, <laughs> but just more sort of instances of perhaps data mishandling that you know, you saw before you wrote this paper, like just an example for the listeners of something that perhaps they wouldn't even think of that is not a grave mistake, but a mistake when handling data. Yeah, totally. Um, there was a paper that did in some way inspire this that will not be called out, but uh, it was uh, related to just the... Um, there's going to be times where there's lots of individuals putting in when you're digitizing a handwritten piece of paper uh, that was written 50, 60, 100 years ago um, that it, uh, then has to be translated into what the species is, is when it was found and where it was found. There's just a lot of um, opportunity for some human error in that uh, transcription. And then in addition to that, um, sometimes just the way the databases work, there's going to be loss of precision. Uh, so an example of that is, let's say uh, someone collected a butterfly in 1970, but they didn't get around to like filling out all the information until two years later, they forgot when they collected the butterfly, but they knew it was in 1970. So they just put on the label, this butterfly was collected in this location in 1970. And that's all the information we have. Um, it still can be useful for other studies, but for phenology, when you need a daily precision, it really does not become useful. And sometimes uh, the data aggregators will put a default, if you only put the year as 1970, that it was collected on January 1st, 1970. Now, 
in North America, in many temperate areas, butterflies are not flying on January 1st. But the data can be put into these areas. And if you just download the data, use it out of the box with no cleaning, you're going to have um, just messy data. And some of it is just wrong. Like uh, that is, that's not a true uh, observation on that date. It's just made it in there due to some sort of error at some point. So it needs to be cleaned and carefully considered in those ways. Wonderful. So is that, is that the idea that perhaps phenology just isn't something that had been considered in the past as much as perhaps like just general taxonomy or general species, you know, is, is, is that something that you're hoping just collectors perhaps in the past just weren't that interested or just didn't happen to note that down? Something as simple as collectors nowadays making sure that they know with precision dates and those types of things, or is that just an expectation? I'm speaking as a layperson, so I'm just asking. Yeah, I think it's one of the beauties of natural history collections is that like, they are a snapshot in time that are going to be used in the future in ways that we cannot can, like even think of right now. And advancements in AI and um, machine learning algorithms are changing the way we use uh, natural history collections. Definitely the idea of climate change is going to be impacting when biological events were are occurring um, as really taking off in much more recent years. And I think we are interested uh, in collecting data that's a lot more um, repeated through time throughout the same year. I think previously it was a lot more imagined that we want to note where a butterfly is and perhaps every year we want to know where it is, but that's about as far as we got. And mm-hmm. it's been a lot bigger of a push recently that we want to know where a butterfly is, not just between years, but within a same year. And that's, that is the data that is necessary for these phenology studies. And I think, um, yeah, it's uh, just... In some ways, though, like we're still, people are going out and forgetting when they collected something if you don't write it down right away. That happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's there's nothing you can do about that. Exactly. (laughs) That's just human forgetfulness. Um, Right, so perhaps you could help us to understand, and I'm going to have to ask you to get a crystal ball out, which Mm -hmm. is not that fun for a scientist to kind of just pure conjecture. You mentioned things that we couldn't imagine. Well, I'm going to have to ask you to try to imagine just an instance of what the progress in AI and um, ways to sort of not manipulate, but handle data. Uh, what could that look like? How could that change the way that you do your work, for instance? Yeah. I mean, one aspect that AI is bringing into the picture is very much related to finding patterns that like uh, the scientist and the human brain is struggling to make those connections with. And there may be opportunities in that to deal with data biases 
that um, can be uh, resolved using some AI approaches that find patterns um, in biases that we weren't able to think of, especially when you're dealing with millions of observations. And we know there's biases in those data where they're um, collected in certain times of the year or they're collected next to roads, all sorts of different biases in those ways. So those connections could be really neat. And then there's also opportunities, especially I think in like predictive ecology of making um, predictions into the future um, climate scenarios based off of um, what we, the data we have in the past to fit those and then trying to project that into the future. Um, that becomes really complicated with the just unstationarity. So basically how uh, biological processes are responding to climate is changing at an unprecedented rate. But I think AI op, uh, really may allow for those patterns to be better found and then potentially projected. Fantastic. So I'm going to now change tack because I think we've handled that part of the sort of collections y AI kind of ex machina style stuff. But I'm now interested in the butterfly part because I always think, just had the thought that a butterfly, sort of like whales, I'm from Wales, right? And whales is always used as a unit of measurement. They'll say like three whales is, is the size of this sort of thing that people can't conceive of, right? Um, butterflies will always seem, at least in the UK, probably in the US, but I don't know. Don't want to speak for our cousins across the pond. Um, Butterflies are always kind of used as a bit of a canary in the coal mine in the UK. So people will talk about the lack of butterflies and how sparse they are or scarce they are. That's uh, what I mean. So, you know, you, you mentioned that really interesting result of, was it earlier migration of butterflies? Mm -hmm. um, what does the future look like, at least within the sort of study systems that you're looking at? What does the future look like for butterflies and you know, what, what needs to be done to assist with? Because I invariably, the answer to this question, no matter what the subject is, is always something negative. So what is the thing that needs to be done in your eyes? Yeah, well, I'll try to first connect this to phenology in specifically. And there's been uh, an increasing amount of evidence being accumulated by scientists that um, how much you're able to shift your phenology in response to cli changing climates may allow, um, and, and this is especially found in butterflies and moths, um, may allow you to better uh, deal with the changing climate. So species have been found that are shifting their phenology earlier or later, basically are more responsive to changes in temperature um, have been faring relatively better. Um, so there is a slight positive for those species, that species that show this ability to be adaptive, to be more plastic would be a word used in ecology, um, are able to uh, fare better in these uh, environments. And then after that, there's just, there are two more of the doom side. There are lots of stressors going on for these butterflies, and it is also indeed used as an indicator species in the U.S. of um, there is 
land use changes, agricultural practices, and um, in the U.S., neonicotinoids are still legal. I believe the U.K. has banned those, and that is something that could be changed that would have a positive impact for butterflies mm. in the U.S. Mm. Fantastic. Okay, thank you for that. Um, yeah, put you on the spot a few times there. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so just as we sort of wrap up, well, before we do that, I'd like to know just the general changes that you hope specifically this study might precipitate. I know we've talked about just sort of helping people who might not be aware of how to handle data, you know, just general best practices. But is the main thing you want to see a, you know, increased conversation or a conversation um, had about the best practice around this? Do you, do you really want to start a sort of open debate so that you can really push forward phenology in natural history collections? Yeah, I think that nat like phenology uses of natural history collections really has just like untapped opportunities to look at not only just how single groups of organism are changes, but like potential mismatch between plants um, and pollinators or um, insects and birds that require um, insects to feed. And so part of the idea is that, yes, I am hoping to increase this conversation and just like move forward the methods for a general um, just uh, making the best use of the data. But then also one argument we make in the paper that I feel really strongly about is that you don't have to do it alone. It's like pretty hard to be a Swiss army knife that can do absolutely everything. And usually if you are a Swiss army knife, like you're not gonna be as good as a true can opener to open a can. So I think that we should be working with collaborations across these um, opportunities, like involving AI experts and other data science experts, including um, people who are taxonomists, who are absolute experts on the species that we're um, including in this, uh, in, including in your study, and then including the museum uh, curators and collections managers as well, who know these data better than anyone else. So just like trying to take a holistic approach that um, recognizes strengths and weaknesses throughout a team that can then be used to tackle problems in a holistic approach. I think that's fantastic. Um, it's a common thread in the last, at least, at least the last five or six interviews that we've had where um, people have really been talking up interdisciplinary research and relying, knowing your own limitations and relying on the expertise of others and yeah, it's a beautiful thing, and it's it's something that I think is everyone recognizes is absolutely necessary with you know climate change scenarios and dealing with them that we can't go it alone. So I'm delighted, and I think you provided a really good example of how that works with regards to natural history collections. So thank you for that. So just as we sort of begin to wrap up, I just like to give a sort of minute for you know you to have the floor to 
give any shout outs to anyone who's helped you along the way. They can be supervisors. They can have nothing to do with ecology. They could be your best friend. They could be whoever. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And for this project in particular, and I really like everyone who is involved on this project has not only helped me get this paper out, but really they've been instrumental to my like personal and career growth. Um, so that includes the co-authors of Elise Larson and Bon Shiree, and they are both just great friends and collaborators. I've loved working with them and look forward to working with them more. And then they come out of the Leslie Rees lab in Georgetown University. And she's been an absolute just great mentor to me and has inspired me to just uh, come at science with passion and great curiosity. Um, Daijong Lee, another co-author on the paper, um, has been a great friend and really been helpful in helping me learn more about the statistical modeling side of things. And then finally, I, I want to give a huge shout out to my PhD advisor, um, Rob Garalnik, who has been instrumental in shaping uh, my thinking and kind of who I am as a scientist, and specifically with this project, did encourage me to keep going. We're at times, uh, absolutely, uh, this was not, it did not start off as a chapter of my dissertation, and it was just kind of a passion project for the both of us. And I became a little more stressed about hitting PhD deadlines and less passionate. And Rob was able to just encourage me in the great ways that stoked the fire uh, internally and like reignited those passions. And just, yeah, I, I couldn't have done it without him. And he's, he's an absolute great mentor. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So just like to remind our listeners, as always, a link to the paper and the plain language summary, which I will add the caveat that everyone, if they do nothing else, needs to go look at that plain language summary because the picture is gorgeous. Um, the BS staff were all fawning over it and thanking God that it came in to be the cover image for our special feature on natural history collections. It's just perfect. So a uh, huge shout out, I think, to is it Sophia Zayas who took that picture. Um, it's gorgeous. So do take a look at that. Um, and yeah, I'd just like to thank Michael Baylitz for giving us his time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Frank. It's been an absolute pleasure.